Mr. Larry Sabato is founder and director of the Center of Politics and the professor of politics here at the University of Virginia. He's the author and or editor of two dozen books on American politics. In 2013, Mr. Sabato won an M Emmy Award for the television documentary Out of Order, which was produced to highlight the dysfunctional U.S. Senate. Mr. Sabato directs the Center for Politics Crystal Ball website, a leader in accurately depicting elections since its inception in 2004. The Crystal Ball uh, notched a 99% accuracy rate in predicting all races for the House, the Senate, Governor, and each state's electoral uh, college outcome. Please help me welcome Mr. Sabato to More Than a Score. Althea, thank you. Thank you so much. And by the way, I totally screwed her up. She had a beautiful introduction written. I came up and I put X, 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 and you know, because uh, my late mother isn't here. Only your mother wants to hear your CV. Um, and you know that's true. So uh, fortunately, we, we got away from that. Plus, I think I've probably talked to the vast majority of you umpteen times. Uh, I'm part of the furniture around here. Uh, University of Virginia is not lucky to have me. I'm lucky to be at the University of Virginia. I'm lucky to be a product of the University of Virginia. I owe the University of Virginia just about everything other than my parents and my earlier schools. But the university's meant a great deal to me and has given me many, many opportunities. So let's get that straight. We're, we're not, they're not lucky to have me. Now, I don't bring that, I understand Terry Sullivan was here. I don't want her to hear that. Uh, <laughs> because it might result in a salary reduction. So she'll, sh she'll shave some money off to give it to somebody else. So don't tell her that I actually said that. Uh, I'm, I'm delighted to be with you today. Uh, we're in the family. I'm kind of concerned this is going to be on iTunes, so I'll, I'll probably tone down some things. Uh, but uh, we're in the family here. How many of you uh, are graduates of the University of Virginia, undergraduate or, or graduate? How many of you are married or partners of or children of University of Virginia graduates. Wonderful. I'm delighted to see that. How many of you are aliens? Uh, <laughs> sir, you were much too enthusiastic. Which planet? That's what I want to know. As long as it isn't Virginia Tech, okay? Uh, just kidding if anyone's listening on iTunes who graduated from Virginia Tech. Um, so uh, people are very sensitive today. You have to be careful about everything. But anyway, you all are very frank with me, just as I'm frank with you. And the, the listed topic was, was about the Kennedy Half Century, and I am indeed going to talk a little about it because there's a new edition coming out October 15th. And amazingly, this I don't know how you got them because they're not supposed to be released till October 15th. But uh, they're here, and it has a new 10,000-word uh, afterword uh, with what I have learned since I published it last fall, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about that in a moment, but you all were very frank, at least the people who contacted me by uh, Twitter and, and email, and you said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to hear your long advertisement on the book, and I'll even feel morally obligated to buy one, but I want you to talk about the midterm elections. Uh, so I got, I got it, and so we've got that deal now. Every single one of you is morally obligated to come up here 
100% of the profits goes to fund the Center for Politics, which produces these programs, and I'm always delighted to give them to you, uh, produces the programs and, and does our, we've, we've gotten two Emmys in a row for uh, PBS documentaries out of order about the dysfunction of the Senate. That could have been a Ken Burns 14-hour uh, <laughs> presentation, but somehow we, we got it into an hour. And then we got an Emmy last year for the Kennedy Half Century. It was an adaptation of the book. I was very pleased about that. And I might as well work in a, a, another plug here. I've got my executive assistant, Tim Robinson, who does a great job, UVA graduate. I'm sorry. You know, I'm probably violating 10 federal laws, but I only hire UVA people. I, I, I just, I'm sorry, sir. Don't even bother replying. Okay? Uh, wherever you're from, I'm not interested. And Ken Stroop, who's my associate director, is back there someplace. Uh, but um, we've, uh, what was I getting into? Oh, I'm going to plug the, uh, we got our next PB, we do a PBS documentary every year. We've really gotten into this. It's a lot of fun. And uh, people will watch what they won't read. So uh, this one, and I, some of you are younger, and by younger I mean 59 and below, okay? I'm, <laughs> I'm 63, and it's, you know, 70s looking. That's a child. You know, I saw this woman who was 106 last night on the news, and I'll never make it, but it gives you hope, you know. Uh, but uh, we, this, the older people here will remember this, as I do. Uh, it was one of the first campaigns that I was really interested in followed. What is this the 50th anniversary of? The 1964 LBJ Goldwater race. And you say, well, my God, it was a landslide. How could, how could this be interesting? What do you see this hour? This, this is the best documentary that we have been able to produce with our partners at PBS. Uh, it's just so much fun. And it's being released November 1st. And it's entitled Bombs Away. And those of you who lived through it know exactly what I'm talking about. Everybody here knows the daisy spot. Right with the little girl picking the petals off the daisy. That was one of about two dozen ads that LBJ used to destroy Goldwater, though he destroyed himself with his own comments, but all about Goldwater dropping nuclear bombs. And if he got, if he got elected, we would be deeply in, in a morass in Vietnam. Uh, I'll just let the irony sink in there. Uh, but uh, in any event, we found the Daisy Girl. <laughs> Incredible. Yes. Now, she, she was two years old then. Not only is, well, she's older, obviously, but she's living in Arizona right down the street from the Goldwater home, which is really ironic. And she apologizes in, this, in our film for introducing the new trend of TV negative ads. And it's true, the daisy spot opened a new era in American politics, which has deepened and broadened, and you all are seeing it on your TV screens every day and every night, right, during this campaign. It's vicious, and it's, uh, it just gets more and more vicious, it seems, every two years when we have a national election. But we got the Johnson girls in here uh, with current interviews, as well as, as some, some great footage of uh, Lucy, the younger uh, Johnson daughter doing the Watusi uh, as as a way of attracting young voters. She's very she's a good dancer. I, and that was back when the Watusi was you know the thing to do. How many of you did the Watusi? Yeah. Well, I'm embarrassed for you, really. Are you with him? Oh, okay. I was just wondering. You know, the alien plus the Watusi girl here. 
Uh, and we've got uh, Barry Goldwater Jr. is in there, um, and just and uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin, who worked for Johnson, and her husband, who was an aide to LBJ. And we we just had so much fun, and we also segmented the program with the TV ads from both sides, so that you can kind of relive this campaign. I've watched it easily ten times at this at this point, and I enjoy it every single time that I watch it. I think you will too. So it will be on every PBS station sometime after on or after November 1st. You know they all do their own schedule. So you can't give give you an exact time, but it will be on sometime in that period because November 3rd is the 50th anniversary of the LBJ Goldwater election and October 4th of course is the midterm election this year. So make sure that you uh, tune in and of course you want to you want to write your local stations and say how much you enjoyed it. Uh, and they should they should replay it over and over and over again, you know that kind of thing. Just a suggestion, maybe your local newspapers too. So anyway, I got my plug in for bombs away. So that's and we'll do one every year. I'm thinking, uh, doing not doing 50th next year. I'm thinking about continuing this series on elections because people are the people are dying off from these earlier campaigns, and I want to get to 68 before everybody dies off. What an election that was, the Nixon Humphrey. Wallace election and 68 was, you know, a horrible year and a great year and thank God for Apollo 8 and all the rest of it. But, you know, uh, we're, we're going to try, I think we're going to do this every year until we get through the elections and by then I'll be dead. Uh, and then somebody else can worry about what the, what the PBS uh, annual thing is going to be. Before I forget, is John Sutton here? John Sutton here? Well, then I'm not going to bother to wish him a happy 60th birthday. His family wrote me and said, you've got to be sure and wish him a happy 60th. And, you know, I'm not interested. I'm 63. He's whining about turning 60. I don't even care. So, that's John, I hope you listen to the iTunes version. I just threw your picture on the floor. Okay. Anyway, see, that's, they probably celebrated too much last night. Now look, uh, I'm going to do a little on the Kennedy book, and then we'll get to the midterm, since that is apparently what, <laughs> what you all want to hear. Uh, how many of you want to hear about the midterms? Okay, by popular demand, I, I, I aim to please, you know, that's, and really as a tenured academic, I should not have to do that. <laughs> I, I shouldn't have to please anybody, but I'm doing the best I can. Now I do, I do want you to, I, I'm going to ask you to watch the trailer for the MOOC connected to uh, the Kennedy Half Century because the book, was, the book was part of a big Kennedy project, the 50th anniversary of the, 20, of the assassination of President Kennedy uh, last uh, November 22nd. And so we did the book and we did a lot of specialized programs, many of which are on YouTube. And we also uh, did the PBS documentary and at the request of President Sullivan, who was here a little bit earlier, uh, she uh, wanted us to do a MOOC, this massive open online course. We got it on Coursera and iTunes, and I'm delighted to announce it's now permanently on both places, and Coursera's changed its rules so you can do it at any time you want to. Personally, I prefer the iTunes version because we built a lot of additional resources in there. Uh, we've done 40 lessons, and we've just added five more. 
uh, and I hope you will uh, you will uh, go to iTunes or if you prefer Coursera, you just type in Sabato JFK or something like that, and it will pop up. And then you can take the lessons at your leisure. You can take one today and one next week, or you can take ten today and two, you know, at Christmas or something. Whatever you want to do. Uh, but I think you will enjoy it, and it's a good uh, a companion to the book. It doesn't substitute for the book. You have to have the book, and. <laughs> And you know, it seems to me that if you if you do uh, if you do use the MOOC, yeah, you do again have a moral obligation uh, to buy uh, one or more uh, copies of the book, which makes a wonderful holiday gift. And this new <laughs> this new paperback has an additional ten thousand word afterward. And what did we? <laughs> it does. It's not a joke. It really has that in there. Uh, now, why did we do this? We did it because. When you publish a book like this, and I'm delighted to say it did well, it made the New York Times bestseller list, the, the MOOC, incredibly, and we never expected this, has now been completed by 153,000 people around the world. And it's continuing to go up. Our goal for the long term was originally a quarter million, which we're easily gonna, going to be able to achieve. And that was the president's goal, to get the University of Virginia brand out there around the world. Uh, and Kennedy was a good vehicle for uh, communicating that brand. So um, uh, you, you'll have some additional lessons, even if you've taken the MOOC, you can, you can take just the new lessons if you want, and the new lessons are based on this new afterward. And what happens when you publish a book like this, you, you tend to get a lot of responses and people write in things that you didn't expect them to say, not just you know their own memories of, of November 22nd or of meeting John F. Kennedy or something like that, but actually new information. And it takes an anniversary, and the kind of media coverage that that took last year, surely you all saw some of the coverage. It was on every network, and I spent a week down in Dallas for the actual anniversary, and you could not move uh, in, the, in Dealey Plaza uh, because there were so many camera crews from virtually every country around the globe. And they had a, they had, for the first time, Dallas commemorated the assassination. They've tried to hide it. Uh, all these years, they've tried to shut down uh, the uh, Sixth Floor Museum, which is a wonderful place, and I would encourage you to visit it when you're there. It's, they've done a very tasteful and thorough job uh, on uh, the assassination. We've got a lot of artifacts you'd probably like to see. Uh, but in any event, I got, I got all kinds of new information, and we put it in the, in the, um, the afterword, and I'll give you one little taste of it. Uh, some of it came from our university uh, community, our university people, alumni crowd. I got a, got a uh, call out of the blue from a woman whose son I had taught many years ago. And uh, she said, I've got something that I've been wanting to get off my chest for a long time, and I'm retired, and I'm elderly, and now's the time for me to do it. Well, we checked it out, all checked out, and I remember the student is a very good student. And uh, this, this particular woman was the uh, last employee hired by the CIA before the assassination. She started November 18, 1963, the Monday before the Friday assassination. And would you believe that she was assigned Lee Harvey Oswald's file on the Monday, okay? She was in charge of the file. And she has a very interesting story to tell. Uh, she was there all night on the 22nd and all through the weekend, and she was right next to the director of counterintelligence office, and she, she saw everything. 
So uh, we have new information, and uh, that's in the afterward. And of course, I'm not going to tell you what it is because uh, you know you're going to buy the book. I don't want to ruin your reading experience. Okay, so I hope that whets the appetite, and this lovely lady from Newcomb has come up here, given up her Saturday to serve you. I hope you won't insult her by leaving without coming up and helping Newcomb to, Newcomb gets a cut of this book, and the Center for Politics gets a cut, and uh, so that's how it works. Okay, uh, let me show you, I'll, we're going to do the MOOC thing. Tim, will you come up and help? I can't do that. This thing I have in common with Nixon, can't operate uh, uh, technical things at all, can't do that. No, you don't remember Watergate, I guess. You know, the tapes, remember the 18 and a half minute tape gap? And my goodness, I'm surprised. Air Force One is on final approach now. Front on the ground. The morning rain clouds over Dallas were gone, but the clouds over a nation were just beginning to form. The cameras caught Mrs. Kennedy stepping off the plane first. As they came down the plane stairway, a cheer went up from the crowd of spectators. They had been waiting all morning to catch a glimpse of the world's most famous couple. Anyone with a pistol could have fired at them. The agents were relieved when the Kennedys finally climbed into the back seat of their convertible. Everyone in Dallas knew the precise details of the president's route. It had been printed in the newspapers and discussed on local television during the week. Pretty good crowd there. The motorcade traveled along Main Street and then turned right onto Houston. Looming directly ahead was the nondescript Texas School Book Depository. Seconds later, the motorcade slowed for an unusual hairpin left turn onto Elm Street. We want a time tunnel to 1963 so we can shout, go back to Air Force One. But the celluloid figures can't hear a warning. The early reports were confusing. It was difficult to separate fact from rumor. And then the news came. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. In the blink of an eye, America had changed forever. The youngest elected chief executive in U.S. history became the youngest to die. Political power is created in many ways, winning an election, facing down an enemy, or skillfully riding the waves of popular opinion. But lasting power is accorded to only a handful of presidents, especially after their death. There is no doubt that John Kennedy is one of the few. The tragedy overwhelmed the public's senses and raised a host of painful questions. Why did it happen? How could it happen? November 22, 1963 was so powerful a moment in the national psyche that in the 50 years since the assassination, Democratic and Republican presidents alike have used Kennedy's words and actions in an effort to craft their own political images. Why does Kennedy's influence persist, and will it continue? We'll address these questions and much more as we explore the Kennedy half-century. How could it happen? That's, and you've just seen some examples now.
I mean, everything's changed since 1963, and nothing's changed since 1963. The Secret Service has to be right 100% of the time, uh, and it's a very difficult thing to do. And uh, after uh, decades of success, people get a little lax. It's just human nature. And then you see the kind of things we've seen in the last few weeks uh, at the White House. So you always have to be on your guard. In any event, uh, I'll take some questions on that after this is over, if you want to ask about it. But let's go on to, if we can, to the, uh, to the uh, sixth year itch election that we're in right now. There's always an election. And this is, of course, the sixth year of an eight-year presidency. And we call it the sixth year itch because almost always it causes the American people scratch some concern of theirs, some itch they have about the way public affairs are going. Uh, and it usually results in, if not a disaster for the White House, then a setback for the, for the White House. Uh, really, the only exception in, uh, in uh, modern American history is, of course, Bill Clinton in 1998, because he found, he found a way that no predecessor had ever thought of uh, to become popular and avoid a six-year itch and to have a sex scandal. And it worked. <laughs> Who would have thought of that? But Bill Clinton, he's a very clever guy. Very clever guy. And, uh, you know, he knew it would cause pain in the marriage and so on, but he, he decided just to, just to tough it out. And, uh, and so, you know, it wasn't easy, but he did it. Anyway, uh, this is uh, clearly Obama's not in that category. Uh, and, and so I don't think he's going to, going to have the, the same ability to, to get past the sixth year. And that means Republicans gaining in both houses. We simply don't know precisely how many a month ahead of the election. You realize this is exactly one month ahead of Election Day. Well, what happens in the last month is probably more important than what's happened in the previous 11 or 23 months because so much happens in that last month. Uh, most of the money raised is devoted to the last month, both television advertising and Internet advertising and get-out-the-vote activities and all the rest of it. So every day is really worth a month in the last election, in the last month. I mean, I follow every single hour of every single day because it really matters in these critical close races. Fortunately, most of them aren't close, or unfortunately, I guess, for the country, they're not close. So you, don't ha you only have to follow, you know, a dozen Senate races and 15 governor's races, and I'll tell you how many House races in just a second. It's pitiful. Uh, now, you, the current lineup, as I'm sure you all know, 234 Republicans, 201 Democrats. The majority's 218, so you can see Republicans already have a comfortable majority. Uh, let me go ahead and project that not only Republicans control the House after November 4th, they're going to gain additional seats. Exactly how many? I can't tell you. Right now, our estimate is five to eight, but it could go up. I don't think it's going to go down. It could go up, depending on what happens uh, between now and then. In the Senate, uh, Democrats have been very fortunate. Uh, to control the Senate and even to increase their margin over um, in 2012 over 2010. They gained two additional seats, 55 Democrats, 45 Republicans. Those of you who are Republicans know without my telling you that the Republicans handed Democrats the majority uh, in 2010 and 2012 by nominating a fairly large group of goofballs. Uh, and uh, they threw away elections that in red states that should have been Republican seats. Right now, at a minimum, 
at a minimum. If you didn't have people like women's reproductive health expert Todd Aiken as a Senate nominee, um, you would have a 50-50 Senate. We would simply be talking about whether Republicans could somehow hit the magic 60 in the Senate. But, of course, there's no chance at all. Instead, they're struggling to get over 50, and they need to get at least 51 because the 50-50 Senate's still Democratic-controlled with, with Joe Biden breaking the tie. And, and really, I, one part of me just hopes for that because Joe Biden would be on the Senate floor speaking constantly into the microphones. Um, and I've always said politics should be entertaining because we, we pay for the entertainment. So why not enjoy it? It's part of life, and Joe Biden would help to make sure that that happened. Uh, let's, first, let's first just take a look at the House. This is, I hope, you, I hope you all subscribe to the crystal ball. I'll get to it at the end, but, you know, it is free. Uh, it's Price is Right, uh, Center for Politics. Uh, it's a product of your university. comes out at 6 a.m. every Thursday morning, and we update you on, on exactly where the House races are, the Senate races are, the governor's races are, and when we get bored with that, we go on to 2016. Now, I don't do 2020. I gave a speech last week. The very first question I got was, let's talk about the 2020 presidential race. Oh, my God. You know, please, let's stick to 2016. Uh, but in any event, he had this, theory, this guy had this theory about how Chris Christie is, will lose in 2016, but position himself as the, as the heir apparent for 2020. And Hillary, of course, will lose after one term, you know, like George H.W. Bush did, because it's tough to get more than three terms in a row. He really thought this thing out, but uh, it gave me a headache. Um, <laughs> but take a look at this. Now, actually, we, we put this together in the middle of September. And we could call all but 13 races in the House of Representatives. There are 435 seats. That's how uncompetitive our system is today because of partisan gerrymandering and redistricting by both parties all across the country, wherever they can, wherever they have the power. And it's so easy to do. It's so easy to draw this with the census data that's available, computer programs that are available. You can precisely predict uh, what's going to happen in most of these districts. So Republicans already have 232. They're guaranteed a majority for the next two years, and they'll go up from there. I think they'll hit 240, maybe go a little bit above. Democrats are falling below 200, which is never, never a good thing. 13 races that we can't call. And we call every one by election day. When you call every race, you're going to get something wrong. But we, we do our best to project based on all the data that we have available by that time. And uh, that's a sad situation. Now, the one, th there are two practical consequences of the Republicans gaining seats. The first is they get a little, little additional buffer for 2016, which will be more Democratic. Why? Because we've developed two turnout models in the United States, two different kinds of elections. Midterm elections, low turnout. Turnout falls by at least 30% from the presidential year. Who falls off? Minorities and young people. Who do they vote for? Democrats, overwhelmingly. So you have a lower Democratic voter turnout in midterm years. The electorate's older, and by older I mean, you know, middle-aged, kind of, you know, our age and you know, up to 70. That's middle-aged. Uh, but it's more skewed toward uh, middle-aged and older. Uh, whites, skewed toward whites, and so, and so it's more Republican. That's their constituency. Uh, presidential years, by contrast, draw out 
minorities and young people who tell me all the time, well, I vote when it really matters. I vote for president. I don't bother with these other offices. I'm busy. Uh, you know, when you're young, you know, you have that kind of attitude that, that um, you, well, you only do things that are really essential because you have such a busy life. But um, uh, the presidential electorate is much more democratic, which will be a problem for the Republicans. And if you want to ask about the presidential race in 2016, I'll be happy to, to try and answer. Uh, so that's the House. You know, there's nothing really to look at except, if, oh, the second consequence is that Boehner will be a little bit, uh, a little bit more secure uh, for his second term. He got more secure when Eric Cantor lost uh, because Cantor clearly had his eye on replacing Boehner and uh, the, the knives were sharpened. I don't think Boehner ever walked into a room without keeping his back to the wall. But now he'll have a few additional uh, seats, and you know, I just think he'll get through the two-year term. I'll be surprised if he goes beyond uh, the next two years as, as speaker. Uh, but that's really the practical consequence of it. And so we really talk about the Senate. This, this year is going to be defined by what happens in the Senate, who ends up controlling the Senate. Now, this is, the, this is the map of the seats that are up this year. Notice there are 21 Democratic seats and 15 Republican seats. That automatically means that Democrats are more exposed. They have to raise more money to defend more seats in more competitive races. Whereas the 15 Republicans, I want you to look at those states. And some of you who've been here before, we've talked about this. Uh, only Maine, of all those Republican states, voted for Obama. It's the only potential weakness, and it isn't at all. The, the senator there is really the last moderate liberal Republican in the Senate, Susan Collins. She's the last one, and she's in like Flint. The election's over there. In all these other red states, Republicans, particularly in a midterm year, have a tremendous advantage. They really do because of the turnout model. And you, couldn't, you could not throw away the election in, in most of those states. If you're familiar with those states, you know what I'm talking about. There are only three Republican seats that are vulnerable to any degree. Uh, Kentucky, and I've never felt that Mitch McConnell would lose. Those of you who follow the crystal ball know that we're the only ratings agency that have had it, likely are from the very beginning. All these people have it toss up because they overreact to every poll. Early polls mean nothing. You look at the fundamentals of an election. For example, presidential job approval. President Obama's job approval in Kentucky is 31%. There is zero chance you can elect a Democrat in a midterm year in a state where President Obama has a 31% approval rating. And so Mitch McConnell will win. I can't tell you the margin. doesn't matter. One voter, a million. Uh, you're going to get another six years, and, and, and he'll be the majority leader if Republicans can get over the 50 mark. So Kentucky, you know, I don't think it's vulnerable. Some people do. Georgia, because it's an open seat, and uh, Sam Nunn's daughter uh, is the Democratic nominee, it's competitive. And Georgia, by the way, how many of you are Georgians? Few of you are. Well, your state's changing. And you're going the way of North Carolina and Virginia. In 10 years, Georgia will be highly competitive. It's already becoming competitive. This is no longer Texas. Uh, it's the next state to fall, the next state to become purple. I don't think blue, but it's going to become purple because of demographic changes. And you're going to see that in the governor's race. Uh, Jason Carter, President Carter's grandson, is in a nip-and-tuck race for governor against the incumbent Republican governor, uh, Nathan Deal. And 
I'll be surprised if he wins. I think he'll set himself up for four years from now, just like Jimmy Carter lost in 1966 and won in 1970. That's a traditional pattern in many states like Georgia. Uh, but uh, things are changing, and you have that crazy runoff system in, in Georgia. If no candidate gets 50% for governor, they have a runoff in early December, early December. And it's even worse for Senate. There's a libertarian and an independent running in the Georgia U.S. Senate race, and if nobody gets 50%, which seems at least 50-50 possible right now, they have a runoff January the 6th. Well, the Senate meets before then. And so imagine if it's 50 Republicans, 49 Democrats, and that seat is going to determine who controls the Senate. The Senate won't be able, the Senate won't be able to do anything. Oh, my God. Uh, how, how will they be able to deal with that? Because, you know, they're a bundle of, of energy and activity, and, you know, they'll, they'll have to waste a couple of days with, with chit-chat and debate and, and procedural motions. This is, not, this is not what the Senate's used to. I'm being, I'm being ironic. Okay. Uh, so Georgia, I think, will stay Democratic, uh, stay Republican. But, you know, it's going to be relatively close. It won't be a landslide. And then the final one, anybody from Kansas? What's the matter with Kansas? You know, I mean, I'm calling it the great Kansas revolt of 2014. I mean, can, you can't get more Republican than Kansas. It is deeply, deeply, deeply ruby red, right? Like the slippers, like the ruby red slippers. Uh, and the incredible thing is that there is at least a 50-50 shot that the Republican senator, Pat Roberts, is going to blow it uh, and is not going to get reelected. He already has blown it. And I don't, I don't mean to be too cruel because there are a lot of these people in both party caucuses who haven't had a new idea since the 1970s. And sooner or later, it catches up with you when you're kind of a bump on the Senate log. Uh, and so Kansas is in revolt. They're in revolt because they're, it's a microcosm of what's happening nationally in the Republican Party. There is a war going on between the Tea Party and the establishment mainstream Republicans, and they simply can't seem to resolve it, at least in some places. So you have an, no Democratic nominee. The Democrats realize there's no chance they could win. Why? The last Democrat elected to the U.S. Senate was in 1932. So, and it was, it was, I remember it was a horrible year in lots of ways. I wasn't around then. No, I wasn't around. I discussed that with Thomas Jefferson at tea, and he, okay. And my students buy that, by the way. They say, what was Jefferson really like? And, so, uh, but Kansas has an independent who's, who's very impressive. Uh, he's he's uh, young, intelligent, comes across beautifully on television. Uh, he is, he's Harvard educated, he's uh, very wealthy, paying for a lot of this on his own, uh, and he's also incredibly vague. <laughs> he, won't, he won't tell you which caucus he's going to sit with. Uh, he's going to do the best thing for Kansas. And what about the issues? Well, I have good friends on both sides of these issues. I'm going to listen carefully to everything they say. Well, you know, you're getting kind of a pig in a poke, but they may take the pig in the poke 
over the incumbent senator because they want to send a message. And it's connected to the governor, Sam Brownback, who's in terrible trouble. Uh, One-term Republican incumbent again. You know, it's kind of tough to lose in Kansas if you're a Republican. But Sam Brownback is managing to do it. Uh, so, and he's running against a young Democrat. People don't even know who he is. But they're voting for the Democrat, Paul Davis, just to get rid of Sam Brownback. Brownback, this, this, if he loses, it's going to be the first time I can remember where a candidate loses because of tax cuts. He, he cut taxes so much they can't fund education and there's and they're lowering the bond ratings and this, that, and the other, and so Kansans are furious about it. Usually, uh, if you're running for governor, you get defeated if you're an incumbent who raised taxes. That, that's called tax loss governors. There are tons of them in, in American history. So this is really, really interesting. But think of the irony of that. If the Republicans lose the Senate by one seat and it's Kansas, I mean, a year ago, I couldn't have imagined that uh, Kansas might be the critical state and that it could possibly turn over. Now, we don't know. Orman could end up sitting with the Republicans, but he he says, got this formulation. He says, I'm going to sit with the majority party if I can get a good deal for Kansas uh, out of it. So uh, who knows? But suppose, it's, uh, suppose he's the critical vote. Then, then which way does he sit? I think he'll sit with the Democrats uh, because the Democrats are supporting him in lots of ways and there's a super PAC organizing uh, for him. Uh, what he doesn't realize he's facing, though, is the Republican rescue team, and I know the head of it. And They've already made a critical decision. They know there is zero chance they can reelect Pat Roberts, but there's a good chance they can destroy Greg Orman, and uh, they're going to air vicious negatives, one right after the other, all the way to November 4th. And, and that may do it. There are enough Republicans in Kansas so that you can rescue a, a Republican in trouble if you spend enough money and you do enough negative advertising. So those are the three Republican seats that are kind of shaky. But boy, then you go to the Democratic seats. Now, those are the blue states here. Remember the last election when they got in, okay? Some were incumbents, some were new, 2008. Pretty good Democratic year. Even in red states, McCain didn't perform up to expectations in many red states. So it was a lot easier for Democratic Senate candidates or incumbents to win. But this is a very different year. This is, again, a Republican tilting sixth-year itch election. So Arkansas, I, I tend to think Mark Pryor is in deep trouble and could easily lose to, to uh, Tom Cotton. In fact, we'll go to the... Go to the next graph here. We've got it kind of shaded red because of that. These are not final predictions. It's a month ago. That's why we publish weekly, and we publish three times a week in the last week of the, of the election. So you have to follow the crystal ball, and you can't hold me to a single thing I say here today. I just, that's for the record. Those listening on iTunes, don't even think about taking me out of context. I'll sue you. Um, but uh, I won't sue. I've never sued anybody. Uh, Iowa, again, it's a, Demo it's a bluish purple state uh, in a presidential year. It would stay Democratic. This year, I think it's edging at least a little bit. It's a close race, edging to the Republican candidate, who, by the way, would be the first woman ever elected either governor or senator from Iowa. There are only two states that have never elected a woman to high office, Iowa and Mississippi. And you don't want to be, apologies to Mississippi, lovely state, but you don't want to be characterized with Mississippi, you know, as the only other state to, to do or not do anything. Um, again, apologies to those from Mississippi, okay? Apologies. If you, if you say with all due respect, you're allowed to say anything, okay? Uh, so, you know, 
I, by the way, she got nominated. <laughs> How many from Iowa? Anybody from Iowa? You know that great ad <laughs> that she used to get nominated, where she recounted her her history uh, growing up on a farm castrating hogs. And just imagine her on the Senate floor. She looks sideways at a male senator. She's going to get his vote. I don't think there's any question about that. By the way, you want to know how, you want to know how entrenched the gender gap is? This, is? this is incredible. This year, we have never seen gender gaps like we've seen this year. The average is usually 15 to 20 points. That is, men being more Republican, women being more Democratic. This, this year, the average is... 30 points. That is how different men and women are approaching politics and voting. And in, in Iowa, uh, Ernst, the Republican woman, Joni Ernst, is ahead with men by 25 points. Braley, a, a, a male Democrat, is ahead with women 13 points. I mean, it's, it's the most massive gender gap anybody can remember. It's literally, you know, uh, men are from Mars and, and women are from Venus in Iowa and, and lots of other places politically. So that's, that's a fascinating aspect. Uh, I should have started out by saying Republicans automatically pick up three states. They got three current Democratic uh, states because the senators, the incumbents, have decided not to run for one reason or another. Jay Rockefeller in West Virginia, Shelley Moore Capito, a University of Virginia graduate, will be the new uh, senator from West Virginia, a Republican. South Dakota, former Governor Mike Rounds, will win a very strange three-way race where former Senator Larry Pressler is actually getting about 25% of the vote. Uh, and the winner is going to get like 40%. But, you know, one voter a million, you're in. And Montana, where the Republican Steve Daines is, is winning um, against a substitute Democrat, young woman state legislator who wears a nose ring. Uh, and, you know, that just is not going to work. You know, it's a, Montana's an interesting state, but it's not that interesting. Um, the incumbent, you know, got in a plagiarism scandal. See, if he had gone to the University of Virginia under the honor system, he would have understood what plagiarism is. I'm serious. You know that's one of the advantages of, of the honor system. So we're down to 52-48. Democrats 52, Republicans 48. You got Kansas on the side, which could screw up the Republicans. So they got to win either three or four more to take control, depending on what happens in Kansas. Uh, so we got on this on this graph four complete toss-ups. There are others that are still competitive. New Hampshire's competitive. Uh, Gene Shaheen is leading Scott Brown by not very much. You were Scott Brown, the former senator from Massachusetts, who decided to move to New Hampshire about six months ago and run now. He's a very personable guy. He's a great campaigner. He's the kind of guy that walks into his campaign events, and five minutes later, he's the guy serving the draft beer behind the bar. I mean, he's, he's got a great style. People love him. Uh, but it's tough to move into a new state and run. Only three people in American history have represented two different states, and they were all in the 19th century. So, yeah, it's a very difficult trick to pull off. But if anybody can do it, Brown can. But Shaheen is winning right now, but not by very much. So I'm, we're going to watch that one. North Carolina, it's one bright spot for Democrats. It's a purple state. Uh, uh, Governor, uh, Senator Hagan, Kay Hagan, is leading uh, the Republican candidate, Tom Tillis, by th an average of 3 to 4 percent, which is close. She's under 50, but there's a libertarian. 
uh, who's, uh, who's posted some strange videos that have attracted a lot of attention, and he's getting 4 to 7 percent, at least in the polls. I think he'll settle down to probably 2 or 3 by Election Day. So we're watching that one. But right now, that could be the seat, potentially, that saves the Democrats if other things fall well for them. But as I say, the Republicans, I think, have a good, sh good shot in Iowa, good shot in Arkansas. So it may come down to uh, those four toss-ups. We've talked about Kansas. Uh, Colorado, I wouldn't predict. It's, so, it's, it's just tied up, and that one could go either way, and that's why you watch the crystal ball. The other two... I'm starting to suspect they're moving toward the Republicans, and it's not just private polls, it's other indications. Uh, in Louisiana, how many are from Louisiana? Bayou, or Bayou Wahoos? Well, uh, you have to do everything differently, of course. Your primary is November 4th, when everyone else is having the general election. The general election, the runoff between the top two is in December. So again, if it's 50-49, you know, we'll, we'll be spending $100 million. $100 million in Louisiana on that one seat. And there'll be $100 million spent in Georgia if they have a runoff. There's an unlimited amount of money. There isn't an unlimited number of billionaires, but they have an unlimited amount of money. And so they're going to be spending it on both sides uh, in, in that, those runoff primaries. But Mary Landrieu is the senator. She's never gotten more than 52% in her three terms. I kind of think her number's up but I'm not ready to say that, and it's close enough, and she's durable enough so that she might be able to pull it out. In Alaska, you have a one-term Democrat. Alaska's a red state. How did this Democrat get in? Well, he only won by, I think it was about 6,000 votes back in 2008, reasonably good year for Democrats, and he won because his Republican incumbent opponent, Ted Stevens, was convicted of seven felonies one week before the election. <laughs> See, that helps, you know. But the incredible thing is he squeaked in with, they almost reelected, you know, a seven felony convicted senator. But, you know, in, in a lot of people's minds, that's the norm in the Senate. So, you know, maybe two or three more felonies than average. Uh, he's in trouble. He's not for obvious reasons, you know, Democrat in, in Alaska. So, you know, the way I see it right now, it's, it's leaning toward the Republicans. It's not a sure thing. This is not a slam dunk. The last month will determine it, but you're talking about 51, 52, and if they're really lucky, holding Kansas and so on, 53 seats, somewhere in that vicinity, small margin. Uh, and, and I'll tell you right now, if they get that small margin, uh, they may be in for only two years. They have an incredibly tough path in 2016. Why? Because six years prior, in 2010, Republicans in that big GOP year, that big wave year, won Senate seats in blue states. They're going to be very hard-pressed to hold their seat in Wisconsin, their seat in Illinois, their seat in Pennsylvania. These are Democratic states where you're going to have big Democratic turnouts for president. So it could be, and I'm not predicting this, is way too far in advance. Although I can be bolder about future years because you'll never remember it. And many of you are Wahoos. You've already had four or five Bloody Marys. So you're, you're not going to remember. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting in 2016. But that's how I see the Senate. Now, finally, the governor's races, uh, I think they're the most important thing on the ballot. People don't pay attention to them except for their race for governor. But these people actually do something. Senators talk, governors act. And if you're going to pay attention to a race, you ought to pay much more attention to your governor's race than to, to uh, your Senate race because they just don't get much done for lots of different reasons, polarization. 
Uh, we're, we've got a lot of governors in trouble. Um, this is a very interesting year. You could have six, seven incumbent governors lose. Of course, there were 29 running out of 36, 29 incumbents. One of them already lost in Hawaii. Uh, so, um, you know, it's, it's going to be a tough year for them. Uh, some of them will pull it out. Uh, I've got the highlighted ones here uh, in yellow that are kind of interesting. Uh, I think Michigan's going to stay Republican. I think Schneider will end up winning in the end, got the incumbent Republican. Massachusetts, who's for Massachusetts? Who can believe that in Massachusetts, which has got an excess Democratic vote total of like 3 million, that the Democratic nominee's in trouble, and it's the same person who lost to Scott Brown, Martha Coakley. Uh, I guess she's going to get the message. You know, if she loses this one, this is kind of, kind of it. Uh, but she could, it's close. I wouldn't predict it. You've got to follow the crystal ball. But basically, she's in trouble. Uh, Connecticut's very close, and I could see that switching. It was like 5,000, 6,000 votes four years ago, and the Democrat won. This time, the Republican could win. I've told you about Georgia. Florida, where are our Floridians? You've got, you've got an incredible. Th this is going to be $150 million just for this race right now, $150 million counting the super PAC money and everything else that's flowing in, the incumbent Republican governor, Rick Scott, who barely won four years ago and has never been popular, is running against Charlie Crest, his predecessor as the Republican governor of Florida, who became an independent to run for Senate, and he lost in uh, 2010. And uh, then he, uh, he became a Democrat to run for governor this year. He's a tripartisan. He's... <laughs> He's, he's trying to bring everybody together. He's also deeply tanned, which helps in Florida. Uh, I would put a nickel on Scott, you know, but it's really, really close, and, and that could flip three times between now and November 4th. Uh, Colorado Governor Hickenlooper's in trouble. Uh, Republican Governor of Alaska Parnell is in some trouble, running against an independent fusion ticket. Independent, who was a Republican, running with a lieutenant governor, who's a Democrat, who was the Democratic nominee for governor, who quit to join the fusion candidate. It's Alaska. You know, you got to understand what goes on there. But you got to, if Walker wins in, in Alaska and Orman wins in Kansas, I guarantee you that will be the trend for 2016. Not everywhere, but you're going to have more fusion tickets and independents running uh, who are well-financed. They're going to have to be wealthy in order to pull it off. But uh, you've got a dissatisfaction with the two-party system, and there are cracks appearing here and there, and I'm going to be interested. And you only need two data points to create a trend. We do this all the time. I've, I've done it with one-and-a-half data points. You know, if you're, if you're pressed for a, you know, a headline uh, someday, you, you'll work with one-and-a-half data points. So anyway, we could talk. Illinois, who's from Illinois? Well, I am amazed that Pat Quinn is even still in this thing, and he's leading in some polls. I, I bet, and again, a nickel on Bruce Rauner, the Republican, who was the right choice for them. He's very wealthy, and he's a social moderate. There's no way you can get a social conservative elected in, in blue states. Forget about it. You never get beyond abortion and gay marriage and that kind of thing. And people just tune out the Republican. So they were smart enough to nominate a social moderate uh, who, can, who can finance the campaign. But Quint, you know, uh, Illinois is so blue that even when you have a less than impressive record, you can manage to potentially to get reelected. I don't know why Quinn's fighting so hard. 
I love going to Illinois, particularly after what happened to us in Virginia. And I'm not going to bring up the recent unpleasantness uh, from the trial. But uh, I love flying to Illinois. It makes me feel better. I get off the plane. I sniff the corruption. Um, <laughs> and I understand. I don't know this for sure, but I understand in Illinois they got a separate prison just for former governors. Okay? <laughs> so the tennis courts are terrific, you know, and so on. Uh, why fight it? You know, just enjoy your time there. Uh, okay, finally, look, uh, more gridlock, because even if the Republicans don't win the Senate, there will be more Republicans. It'll be a 51-49 or 50-50 Senate, and that's all they need. They don't need any excuse for gridlock, but they'll have an extra excuse for gridlock. So nothing will happen, uh, and the House and Senate may be able to, if they're Republican, get some things passed, but President Obama will simply veto it. That's the way our system works. They have a, uh, he has nothing to worry about. The veto cannot be overridden in either House. Uh, so you know, nothing's going to happen. He'll have executive orders. He'll have war powers, which unfortunately have become so presidentially tilted that Congress is kind of an asterisk, and they, they should have been assertive a long time before now. Uh, but it may be too late. So, and I, I added, you know, if the Republicans win the Senate, there are actually people at Washington who, uh, Democrats who say, who are not in the Senate, I really hope the Republicans win the Senate. Because if, if they get both houses, they're going to pass legislation that can be used against them uh, in the 2016 race. It's, it's perfect for Hillary Clinton to say, you need me to veto this stuff. Uh, and there are, there are Republicans who are not in the Senate who privately say, Boy, I hope the Democrats hang on by one vote for the very same reason. So you can lose by winning and win by losing. And, and that's why politics is so nutty, right? It's so nutty because it goes that way. Okay, uh, we're going to leave this up the whole time to remind you <laughs> of your moral obligation. And I don't think I need to detail it any further. Uh, don't you think you should set up other booths at every exit so not a one of these people can escape? I'm going to watch. I will be looking. And don't cross me. I'm Italian. Don't even think about it. I've got an Uncle Vito. Don't even think about crossing me. Okay. He who lives by the crystal ball ends up eating ground glass. Let's spend the rest of our time in a kind of seminar back and forth. You get three hours credit. Problem is, university won't recognize it. Uh, but I'm going to give you three hours of credit. What, what you got for me here? We have questions. I have a microphone here. We'll come around and get you the okay. microphone. I saw this hand first. Does it matter if the Senate becomes Republican? Here's where it matters. It matters in some isolated incidents. Suppose there's a, a Supreme Court vacancy. Then it matters. Uh, and you say, well, you've got to get 60 votes. No. The Democrats changed the rules for uh, lower-level appointees, cabinet appointees, sub-cabinet, and so on. I don't think the Republicans would have any hesitation if they had to about changing the rules for a simple majority for a Supreme Court appointee. And then either the seat would remain vacant or Obama would have to find a former senator who had friends on the other side of the aisle or somebody who was acceptable to both sides. And I think probably out of 315 million, there are probably about 11 people that may be acceptable to both sides. Um, so that's one good example. And let's not forget the reconciliation process. That I'm going to put everybody to sleep, so I won't even detail it. But very early in the new Congress, they have that reconciliation bill, the big reconciliation bill that goes through. 
and if both uh, houses are Republican, they can pass the reconciliation. You can stick all kinds of things in reconciliation, and it only needs 51 votes in the Senate without changing any rules. So if the Republicans have 51, and they can keep their members together, remember, you know, Senator Collins up in up in Maine, and, and Senator Murkowski can be very independent from Alaska, and who knows, you know, if Orman joins the Republican caucus, uh, who knows how he'll vote. So it won't be easy, but they can get some of those things in reconciliation. Got one right, right here. Larry, you've mentioned the, uh, sad, in the sad state of our government, uh, do-nothing gridlock, uh, the pernicious effects of uh, reapportionment gerrymandering. Would this, what do you think the chances of one Virginia 2021 to address that um, and zip, huh? Could you expound on that? <laughs> uh, Virginia does not have initiative. The only way to break up the, the uh, gerrymandering process is through voter initiative, an initiative on the ballot that creates an independent uh, commission to do redistricting, retired judges that are balanced by party, that kind of thing. There are ways to do it. Some states do it well. Iowa does it well. Arizona does it pretty well, although it's being challenged in court. In Arizona, California has has this kind of system. Uh, you know, I'd love to see it because in, in all states, remember, you have Illinois totally banking everything to the Democrats because they control everything in Illinois. You have the Republicans in Virginia because they control the General Assembly and the governor really, well, the governor at the time was a Republican. Uh, they banked everything to the Republicans. What do, I mean, what do I mean by that bank? The Democrats and Republicans in 2012 got approximately the same number of votes for the House of Representatives in Virginia. Same number of votes, okay? And we have three Democrats and eight Republicans representing Virginia. We have 11 seats. That's, that's what partisan gerrymandering is. Same thing is true on the other side in Illinois and all over the country. Uh, depends on who's in charge. Uh, look, <laughs> new constitutional convention, I'm not going to push my, push my prior book, though you need to know a more perfect constitution is the name of it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think it's a constitutional amendment is the only way to go. It's the only way to make nonpartisan redistricting universal so it applies equally to both parties and is fair, therefore. And, and the great news is that, that uh, amendment is scheduled to be ratified on the 12th of never. <laughs> now, let me get this lady, look, you can't be running all over the place, but I, let me get the here lady in the I'm back going, here. Okay, and I'll, I'll repeat your question if I have to. My goodness, she's getting her morning exercise. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your uh, information. And I know that's the Center for Politics. My question the is. The Center for Politics, University of Virginia. University of Virginia. Center for Politics. Center, yes, exactly. Yeah. Right. My question is do you think it's possible for someone who has never been in politics to uh, win the presidential election? Someone such as Dr. Ben Carson, for example. No. Do you think it's possible? No. Well, anything's possible. You're going to say that, you know, anything's possible. I mean, the, the asteroid could hit us this morning. It's possible. I but, worry about I mean, about given, that, given the state of politics in this country, I Look, think it might be something to consider. Yeah, it's something to consider. But let me tell you, you know, this is nothing against Dr. Carson. He's, he's a highly intelligent, able fellow, and you listen to him, and you realize he's got a lot of good ideas in this and that and the other from the conservative side, okay? Uh, he's never been elected sheriff. 
Okay? He's never run for sheriff. Unless you're supreme allied commander of a world war, uh, as somebody was uh, and got elected president, uh, yeah, I think it's really important that you have some experience with politics. Otherwise, you're going to end up getting so frustrated and you're going to be so inflexible. You'll never last the term. Think Ross Perot. If he had been elected, and he might have been, uh, had he been sane, he might have been elected <laughs> in 1992. Is there a person in this room who believes he would have completed the four-year term? You know darn well he would have gotten mad probably on day two and resigned. But, I mean, some point in the four-year term, he's going to march out. He'd probably regret it later. But that's what happens with people who don't understand politics. It really matters if you understand the system and you know the players, and you can work with them. Now, you can go too far. You can know the players too well. And you can become uh, too much a part of the system and absorb the, the uh, ethical uh, fallibilities of the system. I understand that. But that's, uh, Carson's too far in the other direction. And if Republicans want to lose badly, they should nominate uh, Mr. Carson. And there are some others on that list. Larry. I'm thinking Goldwater, you know, they got 38%. Okay, if you want to repeat that, feel free. I, all right, okay, I'm going to let them pick. I, you look to them, not to me. That's so much easier on me. Is, is there any scenario in which the health care law would be overturned in the, in the next two years, and do you feel that it actually remains an issue in any, to any degree? Oh, it's definitely an issue, and, and I've seen in lots of press reports, oh, it's not an issue anymore, it's faded. Totally untrue. Uh, new studies just come out of the television ads that have been aired, and there are already hundreds of thousands in total that have been aired across the country. Show you how sick I am. I spend between an hour and hour and a half early every morning watching every new ad that's come out in every House race, Senate race, and governor's race. So maybe you understand why I'm the way I am uh, and why, why I'm every year I deteriorate, okay, because it, it's cumulative. But the interesting thing is uh, over 30% of the ads, all Republican are stressing Obamacare. It is the number one issue on the Republican side. It's tied with jobs, which is an equal number on both sides. But Obamacare uh, is number one for the Republicans, number one for the Democrats, uh, women's issues, you know, abortion and contraception and that kind of thing. So it's fascinating when you see this. Now, why is it revealing? Because tens of millions of dollars of research, voter research, polling research, has been done by the parties and individual campaigns to determine what works. They have focus groups and the regular uh, random sample polling. And they found the hot buttons that work for their side in a low turnout midterm election. And for Republicans, it's Obamacare. Now, you say, will it be done away with? I think the House and Senate will almost certainly pass some major changes to Obamacare if the Republicans are in charge of the Senate. Again, we're, we're back to zero. This is my favorite expression because Obama will veto it. He's not going to, he, he's had two legacy items, really. Uh, Obamacare and uh, getting out of Iraq. Let's see the second one. Let me see now. That's, that may have been revised recently. So he's going to hold on to Obamacare for dear life. Of course he's not going to accept major changes, maybe tiny little changes, uh, but not major changes. By the way, the Republicans can't abolish Obamacare. It's already become too ingrained. You've got pieces of it that people would never go along with the abolition of, including uh, allowing young people up to 26 to say on their parents' uh, accounts. The Republican goal, if they get a Republican president and Republican 
Senate and House after 2016 is to change just enough of Obamacare so they can call it GOP care. See? That's the, that's the goal. Realistically, you're not going to abolish it. It's not going to happen. If anybody thinks that's going to happen, you're going to be very disappointed in the future, and I'm sorry to burst your bubble. Let me go to the next one. We've got time for about three more questions. Okay. And before the book signing? Yeah, I'll be – Okay. <laughs> Um, what are your predictions for the 2016 presidential election? Who, the, who will the candidates be and who will win? Absolutely. That's easy. I'm not answering. <laughs> I, nobody has any idea. Look, Hillary, obviously. People say, you think she'll really run? When have the Clintons not run for office when they've had the chance? I mean, I guess she could break the pattern, but I don't think so. You know, and she's kind of the crown nominee. Do you think you really think Joe Biden has a chance to beat her in the in the primaries? Or now, I tell you what will give her fits is if our former Senator Jim Webb runs kind of from her both right and left. He's he's pro uh, Second Amendment, and he's very anti-Iraq. And of course, he was elected in opposition to the Iraq War. She voted for the Iraq War, and Bernie Sanders, the independent socialist senator from Vermont, wants to run from the left. Those two will drive her nuts if, if they're in the primary process. So there are ways. She's going to she win easily at the nomination, but uh, they'll, they'll, you know, cause some dings in the campaign bus before it's over with. For the Republicans, it's a cast of thousands. Just yesterday, Lindsey Graham threw his hat in, more or less. Uh, we've counted 23 candidates who are seriously preparing to run. Now, some of them won't. You won't have 23, but you're going to have a big, big group. And if you look at that list, and it's too early for me to designate it, but on that list, you've got some potential winners if the conditions are right, and the conditions being Obama job approval low, uh, problems uh, with the economy and or foreign policy and or scandal, the big issues that matter to presidential race. If the conditions are just right, there are Republicans on that list who can win, and then there are a whole bunch of Republicans who really will give Goldwater a race, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Okay? And for those of you who are Republicans, uh, I, you probably don't like it, but the truth, politics is about tough choices. I mean, it's really unpleasant to make some of these choices. You have, you're going to have to, if you're from deep red states and you have deep red sensibilities, if you nominate a deep red candidate, you're going to lose. You are going to lose. And what do I mean by deep red? Oh, I don't know. I'd mention Texas. You know, there's a, there's a senator from down there, and I had him in, in my class. He was terrific. Champion Princeton debater, Ted Cruz I'm talking about, obviously. He's very good. But in terms of his issue positions, okay, Rand Paul, uh, the other, <laughs> Rick Perry, you know, who's remembered the third thing that he wanted to tell us. He's, he's running again. And his best issue, by the way, is that he's been indicted. That in, it's a part, kind of a partisan indictment, or that's the way it's come across, and it infuriates Republicans. But that's no reason to nominate a presidential candidate. So, you know, there are, there are loads of ways for Republicans to goof this up. There are also some ways for them to win, and we'll all find out together. Yes? I just wanted to, to ask you if you would comment on, on the state of gridlock, because it seems that we're being told that this is somehow the worst it's ever been, and is that in fact true? 
Well, it's not, it's not just that Congress is gridlocked. Uh, Congress is reflecting the changes in the American electorate. We have, at least since the Civil War, not had people so polarized by ideology and party. And it's now reflected in Congress that way. You know, you're, there, there are some purple people, no question about it, purple people leaders. But uh, you're, you're in the minority. You're in a small minority. Most people are decidedly blue in their voting patterns or they're decidedly red in their voting patterns, and they just don't vary. And it's now reflected in Congress. I think for the first time, certainly since the 20th century began, uh, you have a situation in Congress where voting studies, very good studies show that the most liberal Republican is now in Congress, both houses, is now more conservative than the most conservative Democrat. In other words, instead of being intersecting sets the way the parties have been for a long time when you had conservative Southern Democrats and you had liberal Northern and California Republicans, they're gone. They're gone. There are four blue dog Democrats left, four in all of Congress, all right? So you now have disjoint sets. They have nothing in common. And it's reinforced by the leadership on both sides. They don't like for members of their caucus to even socialize with the other side. They discourage it. They hold their Senate caucus lunches at the same time so that there can't be any mixing and matching, no mixed marriages. Uh, this is destructive to the country, but it is in their interests as partisans. So, you know, I'm... I'm uh, concerned about this. And I know what you're saying. There have been other, other points at which we've been very divided, like in the 1960s. But we weren't as divided by party because you had this overlap of conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans. And that's, it's gone. And I don't think it's coming back. There are also some great studies that show that we, the people, reinforce this because when, for example, we're moving uh, to a new job or for education, we like to settle with people who agree with us. And so blue people settle in blue neighborhoods and red people go to red areas. And so it's, this, this polarization is continuing and it leads to uh, a conclusion that people draw in politics. Everybody agrees with me because everybody they talk to does agree with them. And they just, they don't get it. They do, how could this be? How could this election result happen? I saw this in 2012 when, you know, the number one email I got was from, after 2010, was from Republicans saying, even my dog could beat President Obama. Not, nobody I know supports him. He's finished. He's a one-termer. And, you know, Gallup apparently was part of the problem there. But still, the Republicans absolutely believed Mitt Romney was winning, and they were the most shocked group of people. And Democrats do the same thing in certain elections, where they're convinced their candidate is so right and so pure and holy and so on that there's no chance that the Republican could win, and they can't believe it. Uh, this goes way back. It's not universal the way it is today, but I, I've told this story before. My, my dear, uh, dear late mother, this was the 1964 election. We were sitting I was uh, 12. We were all sitting there in the, in the living room watching the television returns come in. This wasn't a Johnson one in like a half hour. So we were just sitting there watching the other races. And uh, we had a particular senator who was up for re-election at an advanced age. And, uh, and he was declared the winner 
uh, very quickly, won by a large margin, and I still see my mother's jaw dropping. And she turned to my father and said, how can that be? We always vote against him, and everyone we know votes against him, and he always wins. And that's the way we all are. You know, we talked about, we think we have a random sample of people in our, in our universe, and we don't. We associate with people mainly who agree with us, who are like us. And that's, that's not healthy for a diverse country, and we are an increasingly diverse country. Is that where you want me to, to quit, or did you want, that's it, we're going to quit there. I've enjoyed being with you. And, and I, I will enjoy signing your books. Everybody, thank you so much. Uh, on behalf of Lifetime Learning, Alumni, and Parent Engagement, we have a gift for Larry Sabato. Thank you so much, Professor Sabato. And we also are going to give away a copy of his book that you can get signed right now. There, see, plug in it.